12, at 12, we ain't going nowhere until we get a CBA. We ain't going nowhere until we get a CBA. We ain't going nowhere until we get a CBA. I'm your host, Devin Springer, as always, and I'm joined by a very special guest today, a good friend of mine who I met through community organizing in Atlanta. Today, we have Tasia Troutman here to discuss the gentrification of Atlanta. Tasia is an Atlanta-based activist, organizer, academic researcher at Georgia State University currently. Tasia is a genius, first off, I'll put it that way, <laughs> but also just a joy of a human to to have the pleasure of being friends with. And last time I was in Atlanta, prior to recording this episode, I asked them if they wanted to come on and discuss some of their research as well as the struggles around gentrification in Atlanta. And they graciously said, of course. Everything Dev said, I am a graduate student at Georgia State University. I am currently in the Urban Studies Institute finishing my Urban Studies master's degree. Thank God, like I actually graduate in December. Um, and it's kind of been a long road getting here. So I stumbled into urban studies because I discovered um, I have this love and passion for cities and blackness, black culture in cities, especially black southern cities and connections between the plantation struggle, the struggle against um, these sort of black labor formations as the plantation informs the city, city growth, city development and the way that kind of translates into my work on the ground as a community activist and organizer. Um, I've spent a lot of time on the front lines with community members in struggles, you know, for space in cities. So um, sort of my research on a theoretical level and a practitioner level goes hand in hand with the work that's on the ground. So I say like the degree that I'm about to earn is not mine. It's the communities because I've learned so much more on the ground in community with it with Atlanta elders and Atlanta organizers than I have in a classroom. Like I've literally spent just as much time at Atlanta City Hall fighting for the people as I have, you know, in a classroom. So that's sort of how all of my work intersects each other and a little bit more about me. And I like the way you put that, that this degree that you're getting is not your own, um, that it's owed to a community. And, you know, I think that's a very healthy way of looking at scholarship and academia and the way people like Walter Rodney um, with their concept of the guerrilla intellectual or Bell Hooks even when she talks about pedagogy and education. These are these are ways that I think some of our, um, our sort of foreparents of the struggle have also conceived of education, right? So I think that's a really great way to sort of frame and introduce this discussion. Um, so before we get into the gentrification of Atlanta specifically, I'm wondering if I can ask you some some more general questions with you, with you sort of being in the heart of urban studies, I mean, some people might not even know what that is, and some people mm-hmm. might have the wrong idea of what that is. So, and I like how you connected your your positioning and what you study theoretically in urban studies. You connected it to the plantation, right, and these sort of old mm-hmm. colonial models or ways of life. 
but before we really dive into that, can you sort of tell me in your, the best you can, I guess, uh, how you define er, quote unquote urban studies or what even urban is for the listeners? Okay, so urban studies as an academic discipline or field is relatively new. Um, the way it's technically defined, it is sort of a mixture between the urban practitioner field. So things like urban public policy making, urban public health, urban planning, urban design, things that have to do with the building of a city, the administration of a city, and sort of the way that has changed through time. So um, I'm a dual scholar. I'm an urban study student first, but I'm also um, co-enrolled in the women's gender sexuality studies graduate certificate program. So my work intersects feminist queer theory um, and critical race theory, which are offshoots sort of of urban studies. And so what urban studies allows for is this space for like interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary thought about one, what is a city, right? And what is the urban? And so my understanding of the urban based on my training is urbanism and urbanization are actually processes. So like a lot of people think, oh, like you urban, so you study black people or urban, so you study like urban planning. That's a cut of it. Um, in in the context of the West, especially the US and Western Europe, um, urbanization is, or the city itself is a physical embodiment of capital accumulation. So, you know, for all the Marxist listeners out there um, or anybody who understands the way capitalism sort of is this ongoing machine and we all play these parts in this ongoing production process, you can think of a city as literally all of the things that the capitalist machine produces accumulated in a dense space. So the roads, the way the city is planned is for the, the heads of state to administer, right? The way we are placed in cities and segregated facilitate better policing and surveillance. The way that cities are formed around certain industries and certain jobs and the way that they feed and connect certain systems are all intertwined in this urban process of production. And so how that manifests itself across geographies and how that impacts and intersects certain people, certain places, and produces certain cultures, whether dominant cultures or undercultures, for example, like hip hop. You know, hip hop, we love hip hop culture. Hip hop was born out of urban processes of deindustrialization and the underdevelopment of certain neighborhoods um, in the Bronx, New York. And during the New York fiscal crisis, how, you know, city productivity stopped funding um, black and brown people, working class people, and sort of gutted city services. So you get this sort of shit show of, um, of poverty and, and just underdevelopment. So that push for like the creation of a urban hip hop counterculture. So urban studies is a broad field that encompasses a lot of different cuts. Um, but we tend to say it's where urban sociology, urban geography, and the urban pra- practitioner field sort of get together and create this lovely interdisciplinary baby that shows you how to look at a city in a way that's more than just a place. And I think that's such an important and critical way to understand what a city is, right? It's a place, I mean, it's a home for capital accumulation. A lot of people think cities are densely populated areas that just sort of happen by nature to become what they are. <laughs> you know what I mean? And no one ever looks, Absolutely. no one ever looks like what you said was, is actually a process. 
And it reminds me a lot. I don't know if you've read the book Spatializing Blackness by Rashad Shabazz. I absolutely have. Um, it's one of my favorites. I cite that book quite often, especially his ties between carcerality and black spatial production. It's an incredible book, and I recommend it to all the listeners. It's Spatializing Blackness, Architectures of Confinement and Black Masculinity in Chicago. But he essentially does exactly what you're explaining. He does sort of an ethnographic research and, uh, and a his- historical look at Chicago and how Chicago, the city of Chicago was designed to essentially be a prison setting. I mean, it's it's built under the mm-hmm. carceral logics of confinement, policing, incarceration, surveillance, e- even all the way down to the way that sorry, working class people's kitchens were built into kitchenettes instead of kitchens, right? I mean, he gets really down into the nitty gritty of the details. But I also think it's fascinating because you can see that that idea of a city being the center of capital accumulation can also go into a global context, right, where we have the imperialist, imperialist powers. Um, similarly, right, are the sort of home of capital accumulation mm-hmm. from from the global south or the third world in that mm-hmm. sense, or what used to be called, or you know, the metropoles, right, the metropolitan or metropole country. So the implications of of your research on the quote unquote urban level can also have very, very powerful mm-hmm. global impacts, I think. Oh, absolutely. So I'm actually, so that's where my work is actually shifting and changing. I'm very, very interested, obviously, in decolonial struggles, in sort of indigenous urbanisms, in what was space before we had these Western settler um, colonial interventions. What are they after? Um, the field of post-colonial urbanism is amazing, um, especially um, scholars like Ananya Roy, who you know does a lot of her field work in her home country or home state of India, and looks at the way India is developing pre pre and post um, colonial intervention. Um, so there's a lot of scholars, and most of them are um, multidisciplinary scholars who you know take cuts at feminism, who take cuts at um, critical race studies like Rashad Shabazz, people who weave in queer theory. I'm currently reading um, a book from the GOAT, Sadia Hartman's um, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments, where she sort of looks for Black life in the slums and things of that nature before um, the intervention of sort of like Western ideals or these modern ideals of what city life should be, right? Because we all know like in a non-colonial context across the globe, people live in a way that people want to live in a way that best facilitates people and then enters usually administration um, and colonial powers, um, state powers to say, all right, we need to facilitate some sort of industry. And in order to administer a space, we need to build something a certain way. So the housing that you build organically, that's backwards, that's primitive, this is the way we should build housing. So we clear the slum and we create the projects. We create public housing. We build roads and we, you know, shift from public transit to cars and give the suburbs, right? And we racialize the urban as black brown. We racialize the suburb as white, pure, and you know, forward moving. And then in comes gentrification and says, wait, no, the city is actually the way all people should live, but we need to rebuild cities in our image. And so, you know, let's forget the suburb, let's queer the suburb, let's queer, you know, the backward, primitive, um, non-Northern, non-Western urban space, and let's make these Western cities like your Londons, New Yorks, LAs, Atlantas, Miamis of the world, sort of the bastion of what urbanity and urbanism should be 
and everything else has to come up to speed. So to kind of segue into our gentrification discussion, I think when you tie it into the global context, gentrification is a local thing, but it's very much a global thing. And it's very much tied to Western notions that support like coloniality and how like, no, the way hegemony says people should live, be, and, you know, acquire wealth and create community, create neighborhood formations is one way. And everybody needs to step up to the plate and um, do it in this sort of manner. And I think things like public health scares and climate change and that sort of thing are pushing the capitalist machine to big cities in a certain way. And so it comes at the expense of history, of culture, and of people um, in a way that vastly differs across the across the globe, but also like is very similar in a lot of contexts. What's interesting is you mentioned earlier sort of the industrialization and underdevelopment creating hip hop, right? And creating culture. Um, in the case of hip hop, it was it was Harlem and the South Bronx, which were literally on fire. The Bronx was burning was like a popular saying in 1972 because insurance, um, I mean, uh, excuse me, because landlords and property owners were burning down their properties for insurance money to then leave the white flight, right, that happened and then leave for the suburbs. And this was a huge, I mean, the mass underdevelopment at the same time as industrialization at that speed had almost never been seen before. And it created and birthed this sort of politic and culture of resistance in hip hop. Now, but that's not always the case, right? Oftentimes it can also, I think, create destitution, you know, waywardness, the city of Hartman's, <laughs> which mm-hmm. I'm, which by the way, I'm also currently reading the exact same book and it's, she's, she's really incredible. I mean, everyone listening should yeah. also read city of Hartman, but I, I want to ask you about one buzzword that you've mentioned as well. It's gentrification. And I think a lot of people have a very simplified understanding of what gentrification is and what it means. Um, usually I think it's an unintentional simplification, right? But mm-hmm. to me, I think people see gentrification often as white people move in and the black people have to go away or white people move in and the black people are kicked out. And mm-hmm we know that capitalism is never as cut and dry as that, nor was colonialism before it. And we, we can look at it on a much deeper level as a process, as you said. So I'm curious as to how you, and you, you would define, how you would define gentrification. So how would I define gentrification? This is such a working definition because as my politics shift um, and as my, my work sort of elevates and advances itself, I too, Um, have differing opinions about why gentrification happens and what it is. But in the most simplest of terms, as you've named, it is very much so the white come in, blacks or brown folks, or the working class folks, or, you know, anybody who's not the dominant, more wealthy, more affluent class sort of moves in and displaces culturally or um, economically the group of people or group of businesses that were there before it. So gentrification is a very much a people-based thing, but it's also, like I said, a culture and economy thing. So you look at, you know, you pick a, a neighborhood that's rapidly gentrifying. It may be a block where there never was housing, right? Or like, you know, all the buildings were like old dilapidated, like um, industrial sites or warehouses that are no longer in use. And then, you know, cities and public administration will work in a way 
to rezone these things. So they may say what used to be um, a textile factory that employed working class people 40 years ago um, is now we're going to rezone this for a mix of uses. So we're going to have retail and we're going to have restaurants and we're going to have housing and we may have an education school zone right here. So we're going to build a new school. We're going to take that old factory. We're going to put loft apartments at the top on the bottom floor. We're going to put, you know, businesses and restaurants and service places, you know, like your hair salons or, or anything that services a community. And we're going to put it all right here. And we're going to hope that this sparks both new people to move into an area where we air quote think is not populated because, you know, the way that classism works, gentrification is both racialized and it's class-based. And I think that is very important, a very important thing to name. Black and brown people can be gentrifiers. If they have the means of capital, they are the ones investing in this development that I'm, you know, thinking about in a hypothetical sense. Um, And they strategically don't put things in place to keep a mix of classes there or the um, existing class or group of people there, they too gentrify and displace. So because, you know, we live in America, we live in the West, it is very much white versus black brown because of the way class and power are sort of set up in our society. But it can be very much black on black gentrification, brown on brown gentrification. I know we see a lot of that in Atlanta, um, especially the way our real estate market here works. You get a lot of people not from Atlanta, um, black folks, especially who are affluent with money. They come in, they make these big investments, they get in cahoots with the black ruling class and they say, all right, we're going to take our money, we're going to invest it. And to them, buying up a bunch of houses and flipping it is a good investment. But for the people who live in that community, who look just like you, who have spent years without access to jobs and social services and sort of the things that are the backbone of a, air quote, vibrant, thriving, healthy community, all of those things go out of the window um, because capital talks, right? So no matter what color it is, capital speaks. Um, So it, to me, is this play and rebalance of dominance. So it goes from community-centric, community-owned, often underdeveloped, into something that is valuable, something that is made now habitable, and something that is now only accessible for those with the means and affluence to now access um, community and the the, um, sort of anchors and the things that are important in a community go from community needs and community services to amenities, right? So, you know, in the part of Atlanta that I live in, I see this all the time, something that may be, you know, crucial for wellness, like a workout place or somewhere to eat healthy, air quote, healthy, like, you know, it's overpriced and it's only accessible to the people that they hope to attract here, not to the people who already live here. And so you can remain in your community and the housing prices sort of sort of stay similar, but because they've displaced all of the cultural relics that made your home your home, you can also be a sort of victim or a be impacted by gentrification. So it's it's two cuts, class and race, and it can happen commercially, i.e. businesses and culture, or it can happen um, at the home economic sort of level. Mm-hmm. And I think that gentrification and the process of gentrification can also be seen as an indictment of the failures of capitalism and, and of mm-hmm capitalist state and local government because in order for gentrification to occur one of not the only but one of the processes which has to occur is the intention 
or I should say focus of a local governing board has to switch from sort of attending to the, to the local residents and community that's already existing to outside developers and as you say, capital, right? And we see this time and time and time again in Atlanta, of course, but this happens everywhere. I mean, I was actually recently speaking with someone from Durham, North Carolina, and surprisingly, he was telling me that the numbers of black evictions and black foreclosures and then black homelessness as well in Durham were equal to, similar to, or more than that of Philadelphia, which we view as sort of the hotbed of gentrification and a huge black population, right? So mm-hmm. not even in just the big cities that we think of when we, when we hear the term gentrification, this is happening on a local level in many different spaces. So I wanted to touch on when you mentioned black gentrifiers, because this can actually be a pretty controversial topic for some people. I've, I've actually had people get upset with me before when I suggest the idea that black people can also be involved in the process of gentrification. And I think it's because people hear that and they think that we may be conflating someone being a black gentrifier with state power or class power of all black people in the U.S., right? That because we say some mm-hmm. black people can gentrify, that means black people are not economically depressed. That's not the case at all. That's not what we're saying. However, individuals can take part in horrid processes, especially individuals with the with the capital to do so. Absolutely. And so, ooh, yeah, Black gentrification is very real. It is like not a myth. Um, you can look at it. I like looking at it at the celebrity level. So back in June um, during the BET Awards, I had a tweet go viral and people tried to drag me um, because I went off about Tyler Perry Studios. Um, which is actually timely because Tyler Perry Studios just had its big, lavish, super like bourgeoisie, like upper class, upper echelon black celebrity grand opening on yep. the south side of Atlanta. Now, Atlanta South Side, the um right before you get from the West End into like College Park and East Point, like we know that's traditionally black. That's where we get all of the black artists basically from Atlanta in the nineties and early two thousands, there is no outcast without this out of town. Like this is the part of Atlanta that I'm talking about. So Tyler Perry um, bought a former uh, military fort, uh, Fort McPherson, which was abandoned sort of by the military uh, transitioned over into ownership by the city or the municipality. Um, Maybe it may be the County. I'm not too sure about the exact details, but this is also how neoliberalism works when you talk about failures and successes of capitalism. So as the public sector shrinks, there becomes an incentive for the city to get as many public spaces off of their books to manage as possible. So you get things like a university buying a stadium when the professional team moves to another town or the very wealthy movie maker, Tyler Perry saying, all right, well, I'm going to be the principal investor and I want a huge, large uh, soundstage, sound studio production space that, you know, I can just play and it be my playground and they get it for dirt cheap and they develop it in their image. So the tweet that I let off, I said, you know, Tyler Perry Studios is an anchor institution in the gentrification of the south side of Atlanta. It is not cooperatively owned. It didn't come with a binding community benefits agreement. And black capitalism is not a means of collective liberation. Um, 
And so that was that was really important to me. And a lot of people didn't understand what I was saying because one, Tyler Perry's speech that he made as after he received um, a major award of the night, you know, was very like it was it was dripping in like individualist capitalist rhetoric. Um, he was saying y'all were begging for a seat at the table while I was in Atlanta building my own. You know, the land was owned by Confederate soldiers to keep 3.9 million Negroes enslaved. Now it's owned by one. And I'm like, so this development could have leveraged like hella, you know, revitalization for the community had the community been involved in its planning in a meaningful way. But meaningful community engagement actually doesn't happen the way the neoliberal city works is if you got the dollar Devin and I need this up off my hands here you can have it and if you can get the partners to come to the table and develop what you need in a way that I don't have to release as much funds and as much support for it as possible I'm going to be all for it as the public administrator we're going to celebrate it and we're going to cloak it in these things like we are providing jobs and we are we are changing space that wasn't useful into space that is productive very capitalist in thought and you know the community should be happy because look like a wealthy black person came in and developed this this space for the city but there is no affordable housing anchoring it it is driving up the housing costs Um, The percent of it that had to be um, developed um, to support homeless folks was on the accountability of the city, not Tyler Perry. And it took forever to sort of get those numbers where they should be. I don't know if they are going to provide as much space for homeless individuals as they should. But the entire development of that space is a classic example of the way celebrity, Black, wealthy, private development regime sort of works hand in hand with the ambitions and goals of a neoliberal city that is trying to become a global city. Atlanta is, you know, now what we consider a global city. So like a player on the world stage, um, a lot of that happened with the Olympification of Atlanta. So Atlanta hosted the Olympics in 96 in the period between 93 and 96, you start to see things like we begin to strategically tear down all of our public housing projects. And so where do all those black folks go? And we begin to, you know, think about how we redo transit and how do we do all those things that make Atlanta very much palatable or very much high up on the list of outside investment because cities are broke. Like Reagan, um, you know, gutted funding for cities. So the reason we get a lot of this gentrification whether it be black or white, is because cities need capital flow. And if private firms, if private individuals, if private ambitions have that capital flow, cities will do whatever they can to, you know, compete for that. And so when you you look in your city, like, what's the name of your stadium? Like the Georgia Dome used to be run by the Georgia World Congress Center, which is a state institution. Now they tear it down, they rebuild it. It's the Mercedes-Benz Dome. So like we have a private business from Germany who has come in and through the workings of a local billionaire, Arthur Blank, who owns the Atlanta Falcons and Atlanta United, you know, is also the head of Home Depot. So you have Home Depot and Mercedes Benz coming together. And the other anchor in that is Chick-fil-A. They are now developing a stadium in a way that a city who does not have access to that type of capital would would do so. So it's all in the hands of the private market. And then as the neighborhoods around it change and rich gentrification, it's up to the behest of the billionaires of the affluent to decide, well, how do we make these communities 
better, not for the people, but for the image of the amenity, the stadium, the anchor institution, the, the professional sports team. So Tyler Perry, sports, all of these institutions, if you take them and you pull them apart, you see how then once the needs and the, the provision of services for everybody but the people um, jump to the top of the list and sort of people are at the end of the day sort of fishing at it or going at it on their own. Um, which is what we think of as gentrification. So it's a lot of layers to pull back. So I can understand where people may get confused and say, oh, black folks absolutely can't be. And like, if we're well off enough to be gentrifiers, then we good. No, no, no. There's always been affluent black folks. Like (laughs) it is what it is. Like in Atlanta, you know, is sort of a model for that. I mean, W.B. Du Bois's talented 10th didn't like come out of his ass. Like (laughs) he was a part of Atlanta society. Like Mm -hmm. he was around here with millionaires, you know, who were very much plugged into the university infrastructure and sort of had that early 20th century spirit of racial uplift. Like if us at the top can just reach down and reform those troublesome wayward Negroes at the bottom, like we can all be good. That's not how that goes. We displace our own in order for like individual capitalist gain all the time. And you mentioned Ronald Reagan. I think that's interesting. I was just reading a book by Lester K. Spence on neoliberalism, and he spends a lot of time discussing Ronald Reagan, who in many ways was sort of the the founder of American neoliberal capitalism. He gutted the public sector in favor of the private sector and had the privatization of of almost every major industry. And along that process came with busting unions, getting rid of affordable housing, uh, slashing food stamps and social security, welfare. Uh, you know, so I, there's, there's a really tangible history to gentrification when reading into the through line of neoliberalism and its rise. And for those of you listening who might not know what neoliberalism is, I would give it a quick non-comprehensive definition as the the favoring by a government of the private sector over the public sector for roles and and responsibilities traditionally that are of the government. Wait, I think I just butchered that so bad. <laughs> well, no. Yeah. So what you said, plus it is the the financialization or monetization of everything. So everything ha- now needs a capital dollar value to make sense in this world. We can now make money and leverage every little thing from our culture to our history to our, our very spaces that we live and breathe in. The air, the water, the resources, mm-hmm. everything has a dollar amount. And we now favor deregulation, deregulation for the... Um, the uh, free market so it's free market capitalism on steroids right. and it says like yeah so like why sh- yeah it's like why should the public sector do these things when we think the private sector can be more efficient right and so if you if you are of the mind that the the government quote unquote right the state really has certain roles and responsibilities it's supposed to carry out the neoliberal turn would assume that the private sector and the private economy can do these roles and responsibilities better or equally efficiently or more efficiently. And therefore, for example, if you're shutting down state-run homeless shelters in Atlanta, which Atlanta has shut down effectively, I believe, at, to the, at the time of this recording, all but what, two state-run 
um, shelters now, or are, are those two yeah, gone? Yeah, and they're they're in part state run, so you know it's it's, mm-hmm. it's all a very messy system. So some of it there is there's a very small slice of it that is community development block grant and like you know funding for homelessness and and sort of social social work lane of you know human development. And then the rest of it is dependent on the behest of your United Ways and your local nonprofit. Mm -hmm. It's very much, if you think about it on a global scheme, the way that, you know, the uh, IMF or the World Bank comes in and guts a national economy and then says, in order for you to receive this aid, you got to carry this money out. You got to redo your entire economy to fit, to check our boxes, to receive this money, and then you owe us on it. Exactly. That's how public services work in a city. Like neoliberalism on a very small micro scale can be seen like in a city in the same way that we look at it on a national scale. Exactly. Why Why should the city of Atlanta have to provide homeless shelters and warming stations when the Salvation Army and local churches and other sort of private entities, nonprofits especially, can provide that service. The market is what they're saying can provide that service more efficiently, right? And then of course, the market will always be profit driven. And when we talk about gentrification, mm-hmm. I, I like that you use the phrase the neoliberal city in referring to Atlanta, because I hear a lot of people use that term or similar terms at least in referring to other cities, but Atlanta always gets viewed a little bit differently because of its history in relation to blackness and black people, right? Mm-hmm. It's called the Black Mecca. It's home of people like Du Bois, MLK, and several figures. But there is something to be said about neoliberalism is one of the winning pieces of gentrification, and it's what has largely allowed for it to happen. Now, there's two things you mentioned that I want us to sort of carry on to these two threads. Um, One of them is you mentioned Tyler Perry and one of the pushbacks I have heard is that to call out individuals is a very individualist way of looking at black gentrifiers. And I'll say, okay, even if, even if you say that we can look at Keisha Lance Bottoms or mayor Mm -hmm. Kasim Reed, who were Mm -hmm. both, they were both praised for what they did or Keisha who's for those listening who don't know, those are the, the former and current mayors of Atlanta. Um, they were praised for allegedly providing housing to people in Atlanta when in reality they signed million and billion dollar deals with contractors to provide luxury apartments for the private um, sector, right? So this isn't, this isn't just individuals or celebrities. This is also like actors at the state level and at the city level who are, who are involved in these actions. Um, and and then what I what I really wanted to pull out of there that you said is you mentioned GSU Georgia State University buying a stadium, and mm-hmm. when you talk about gentrification in Atlanta and the struggles against gentrification, which is often where we find resistance and resilience and culture and struggle, um, Georgia State University bought Turner Field, a stadium for a baseball team which is no longer even in Atlanta. <laughs> yeah. And but this actually birthed a huge struggle. And I know that you were involved in this as were as was I a little bit, but really you and a lot of my friends and our friends. So can you discuss that a little bit? I don't think that all the listeners are familiar with uh, the Georgia State buyout of Turner Field and the tent city actions that occurred around it and that are still really occurring to this day in different forms. On January 5th, 2017, 
Carter and Oak Developments and Georgia State University closed on a deal that would allow them to purchase Turner Field from Atlanta Fulton County Recreation Authority for $30 million. Scott Taylor, CEO of Carter and Oak Developments, and Mark Becker, president of Georgia State University, together promised that the deal would bring a new level of development and transformation for the entire city of Atlanta to enjoy. But the city too busy to hate is no stranger to fancy language and is definitely no stranger to gentrification. The residents of MPUV saw the deal as an opportunity to encourage development without displacement. Recognizing the necessity of having a seat at the table, residents of Summer Hill, Grant Park, Mechanicsville, Pittsburgh, and Peoplestown came together to form the Turner Field Community Benefits Coalition. The purpose of the coalition was to be a representative body to show that the residents of MPUV wanted to take a lead role in the development coming to their neighborhood. Over the past 50 years, residents of MPUV, Atlanta's last predominantly black neighborhood, have experienced gentrification, displacement, and settler colonialism, thanks in part to the introduction of I-20 through several neighborhoods, I-85 through several neighborhoods, several parking lots, and the construction of a number of stadiums. Refusing to allow any more residents to be displaced and for any more history to be erased, the Turner Field Community Benefits Coalition came to the table with one simple ask for legally binding community investment that was intentional about development without displacement. So Tent City is actually an excellent example to tie together all of the threads from Tyler Perry in the South Side to neoliberalism to black actors at the top, at the state level, um, public administrators that have black faces and the neoliberal city. So like most cities, um, which became chocolate cities in the 60s, meaning where the city is predominantly black, the suburbs are predominantly white, word to George Clinton in parliament, you know, chocolate city and the vanilla suburbs um, when they were talking about DC and sort of a lot of the other cities around the nation. Um, so Atlanta became one of these chocolate cities. So in 1970, maybe 1971, um, we get the election of Maynard Jackson, who is the city's first black mayor. Um, and Maynard, you know, does a lot of revolutionary shit for the time. So this is immediately post-civil rights. Um, he, you know, spearheads the development of MARTA, the public transit system here, and he spearheads the development of the airport and, you know, sort of sets these quotas and says, okay, in order for any of these developments to go out, like they got to have a certain number of black contractors um, assigned to it. So that's sort of a way that Atlanta was, you know, moving the needle as far as race relations go, but it was still very much class-based. So sure, like people who have access to capital can participate in the development regimes, but what about the working class folks on the bottom? So the white mayor, two mayors before him, um, I can't remember his name, but the mayor in the 60s. Um, he pushed for the development of Fulton County Stadium, which was the stadium that preceded um, Turner Field before we even had a baseball team. So there was this whole like regime push to get this stadium here. And they located it on the south side in the heart of these historically black neighborhoods. So the stadium neighborhoods, as we call it for shorthand, are the neighborhoods of Peoplestown, Mechanicsville, 
Mechanicsville, which is the fictional location of the movie ATL. Remember they say at the beginning, I'm from Mechanicsville. Mechanicsville is one of them. Um, Summer Hill, um, Peoplestown, Pittsburgh. So these are some of the first black neighborhoods following emancipation. A lot of slaves moved into the city, settled these neighborhoods to work the railroad lines. And, you know, this was turn of the century. So it, it is historically black. It is historically working class. Fast forward to the 60s, you get the first stadium, the first cuts of urban renewal. You get highways pushed through them. And the black mayors sort of inherit this Atlanta history of we displace poor black people for infrastructure and stadiums. So the Turner Field fight that just went down um, between 2014 and 2017 was the third iteration of black folks fighting for their space in this in this same neighborhood area around the same stadium. So the first stadium came at the push of the mayor. The second stadium came for the Olympics. So we get Turner Field. They tear down the original Fulton County Stadium. We get Turner Field um, as the Olympic Stadium. So this is where most of the main events for the Olympics happen. And you get a second wave of black displacement. And a lot of the elders like um, um, Columbus Ward um, were a part of the neighborhood um, both at the time of the development of the Olympic Stadium, and they contested that, as well as this recent tent city struggle that we had. So the recent struggle, the Braves had been decided that they weren't going to renew sort of their lease, if you think about it, in terms of like home and small business sale. Like they were like, we're, we're not going to renew our lease with the city. So the city owned what was Turner Field, what is now Georgia State Stadium as a part of the Fulton County Recreational Authority. So it's the governing body of the county in which the city of Atlanta sits in. They own the stadium. Now, if you know how business works, like you want your balance sheet to add up. This is a neoliberal city. So we got to break even or make a profit or like we got to cut, we got to cut some fat. <laughs> we got to trim some fat. So the stadium becomes this burden, this fat. So there's your incentive for the, the, people who run the city to do everything in their possible and everything possible to get it off of their ledgers, off of their hands. At this time, Keisha Lance Bottoms, who is now the mayor, is um, a city councilwoman. And she is in the pocket of the then mayor, Kasim Reed. Kasim Reed followed, you know, Shirley Franklin, who helped push for Shirley Franklin and Bill Campbell, who helped push for the tearing down of public housing projects. And of course, Andrew Young, who was also a black mayor who pushed for the neoliberal turn. So they are inheriting this sort of way of development. So big capital at the expensive community is the actual Atlanta way. Um, so Keisha is the head of the Fulton County Rec Authority. She orchestrates the deal with a couple of the other um, city council people who sort of um, preside over the South Side. And the community is like, hold on, if the stadium's going to leave and y'all want somebody else to run it and the only person interested in buying allegedly is Georgia State University, then we need a piece of this because our communities are underdeveloped. Like they are strategically underdeveloped. We got the highways. We got years of displacement. There are no jobs. We got air quote crime, high crime rates. You know, the schools are, are bad in comparison to, you know, what the state says they should be. All of the sort of ills that we know that comes with an underdeveloped community. So the community's like, 
why don't we leverage the funds that are going to come out of the public sector and from the private developer and the university to invest in the total community and not just in the space of the stadium. So if you're going to do the stadium and you want housing and restaurants and commercial spaces, then they need to look like what we in this community want them to look like. So the Turner Field Community Benefits Coalition was born and they took these ideas and they created this amazing plan. And this plan did not, it doesn't like come overnight. It's not just saying like, we want a bus stop and a pizza parlor and like clean restrooms and like more parking spots or whatever. No, like the community members went through trainings. They showed up to a lot of public meetings. They demanded and called public meetings. They got the help of private consultants. They had lawyers on their teams. They went to trainings to understand everything from green infrastructure to public health, you know, without having to go through a formalized education system. And they research best practices from around the country. They build an amazing community organizing community, like local, locally and connected to other struggles around the country to say, hey, like you push for a CBA in your city. Like what laws did you need? What type of funding did you need? Like what did you do to sort of get this infrastructure in place? And they came up with an amazing plan and they even leveraged um a city planning tool, which we call here the Livable Cities Initiative, um, which was our Livable Centers Initiative. Um, So they leverage sort of points laid out in the LCI and points made in their CBA, laid them on top of each other. And they were like, look, the city wants to put this down here anyway. We need this down here. So city advocate with us and not side with the developers and help us get what we need. Long story short, um, before the community could get their demand met um, in December of 2016, uh, or 2015, I can't remember which year, 15, 16, Keisha Lance Bottoms hits the gavel um, on the legislation that she heads to go ahead with the sale. And in December, I think it's right before New Year's, um, they decide to go ahead and sell Turner Field to Georgia State University. Georgia State University had entered into a public-private partnership with Carter Developers. So here you have neoliberalism working again. They love public-private partnerships. So you got the university's foundational money, like fundraising arm, in a business relationship with the developers, um, creating like this Panther LLC business. So you have the community in litigation or in these um, negotiations with Panther LLC and the demands continue to not be met. So come April of 2017, the community's fed up and they're like, you know what? You sold the stadium. You won't give us our CBA. We mean it when we say no CBA, no deal. So the same community members um, are longtime um, advocates for affordable housing. So they are leading an anti-gentrification strike. called, um, I don't know, it was an Atlanta gentrification strike. So they're marching and it's supposed to culminate at the stadium. There's supposed to be a rally, folks go home. That didn't happen. The community is like, you know what? We're pissed. So we're going to camp out indefinitely. If you won't give us homes, if you won't give us the things that we outlined in the CBA, then we are going to um, camp out here indefinitely. We're going to erect a tent city, very Occupy style, very, you know, in that line of direct action protest. And this is indefinite. Until we get a CBA, we're here. So 
we are involved in months and months of negotiation, um, which long story short, the CBA doesn't happen. The uh, university goes ahead with their plan. And this was in 2017. Here we are, 2019. Georgia State University played their first game there in late 2017, so August of that year. So it, it happened quickly. And um, the mixed-use development is, you know, sign still delivered. So we got some cute coffee shops. We have a private student apartment, so very high-scale um, student apartments, you know, with the individual leases that start at $1,100 a month for an individual room and a four-bedroom floor plan. I don't know who in college is paying $1,100 a month, but the university is definitely attracting students that they want, not students who need the school. And um, the community has definitely seen spikes in housing prices and interest in development. And so with this development being side by side, with the Tyler Perry development, with the growth of the airport, in about five to 10 years, you're going to see a totally new South side of Atlanta that the poor Black residents and working class Black residents tried to stop and make in favor of the people. So I know that was like a long-winded story, but Tent City is itself, you know, like a, a defining moment in Atlanta being for the people or that just going out of the window. No, I do think Tent City was a very defining moment. And I remember, it, I mean, even on a political education level, the act of forming a, a Tent City, right, mm -hmm. is crucial. And it's not a new tactic, but I think that it's always implemented in the context that makes the most sense. And this was spontaneous and it also made so much sense, right? It was it, not spontaneous in the kind of robust sense, but you get what I'm saying. Um, yeah. and, and so I think that I'll, you have a housing crisis and these people are sleeping in tents. It's almost like a glaring look into to the future, right? It's mm -hmm. black people in tents and homeless who've been kicked out of their homes. And, uh, I, I noted you mentioned highways going through neighborhoods, and I hope listeners understand how how intentional that is. And I know exactly mm -hmm. why why you note that because I want everyone listening to this, especially if you live in a city, to think about the highways in your city and what neighborhoods or what communities certain exits go through. Usually, the highway, if it's going to go directly through a town or directly through a neighborhood, it's a black and or poor working class neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Highways will literally this is and this is a part of city planning and quote unquote urban planning, right? Mm -hmm. Highways will literally go right through a neighborhood. Yeah. So nonetheless, tent city is incredibly important. Along with the actual tent city that was happening where people were camping out, they did political education seminars at mm -hmm. night. They had musical performances. People from all different walks of Atlanta came and brought them food and camping supplies. Then at Georgia State, they coordinated actions, right, where people did absolutely people did sit-ins in the president's office and protest all around Georgia State and flyering and campaigning. And it was a very pivotal moment because I think the majority of residents in Atlanta knew Tent City was happening and saw it was happening. And the city of Atlanta, Keisha Lance Bottoms, Mary Cassie Reed, these these major players could also look and not deny it was happening. And it showed people that they still did not care. Because Absolutely. as you said, they went to city council meeting after city council meeting and had dozens of residents come and testify at these meetings. Mm -hmm. And power and in and, uh, and protest, power was confronted directly. Absolutely. 
So people got to look at it and say, wow, they really don't care about us. They only care about luxury. And it's not that we're against new coffee shops or trendy restaurants or juice bars. It's that when those things come at the expense of the community and price out the community that's already existing there, we have a problem. Absolutely. And I know I'm talking more than normal, Tasia. I'm just trying to contextualize it because me and you are very Atlanta in our analyses and people who aren't from Atlanta might not understand. The 1996 Olympics happening in Atlanta was one of the most crucial things in the history of the state of Georgia because it turned what was already a budding police state into a full-on anti-Black violent police surveillance state. Ooh, absolutely. The intersection of housing, homelessness, rent, policing, surveillance. I mean, you actually, there were actually, for those of you who don't know, in the ninth, lead up to the 1996 Olympics, there were hundreds of homeless people who were put on one-way buses mm-hmm. because the city of Atlanta believes that the local politicians and police had not done a good enough job of eradicating homeless people, homeless majority Black people from the Olympic areas, that they hadn't done a good enough job. And because the Olympics was just a few months away, that they literally put homeless people on one-way tickets to South Carolina or across the country on one-way tickets that they paid for under the guise promising to them that where they were go where they were going was going to be a fully stocked kitchen and a warm bed for them to sleep in and social services i mean this is the corrupt nature of neoliberal capitalism expressed through gentrification in atlanta <laughs> it's so interesting that you bring up the busing because um a lot of my work um in cities and just thinking about urbanization as a process i frame it in the sense of disaster um, and disaster capitalism, disaster economics. Um, I cite a lot of Clyde Woods, Naomi Klein, um, Christina Sharp, um, you know, Sadia Hartman, Frank Wilderson, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, when we talk about slavery and disaster. Um, and so we have to look at big development and things like the Olympics as disastrous, right? Because in a disaster framework, we're supposed to measure a community's resilience to a disaster or extreme, whether it be a financial crisis or it be a hurricane, i.e. a recession or a Katrina, um, you know, we, we measure that based on how do they handle a long-term stressor like a financial recession or a immediate like shock that you, you can't, you know, anticipate like a hurricane Katrina. And so, you know, the same imagery that you get of people being put on buses out of New Orleans and ending up God knows where in this Katrina diaspora, you know, big development, especially things like the Olympics, create the same sort of disastrous conditions for a city. And when I say disaster, I mean, like, it guts the way that we know our spaces and cities to be and puts in in its place something that's unrecognizable. And we are fed this excuse that, oh, this is for the betterment of, you know, sort of the community after the storm. So we know how shitty the storm was. We know everything was in ruins and wreckage. But look, like now we got this this Olympic game, this new, you know, football stadium, this new community development that, you know, is going to pull us out of that out of that crash. When you talk about, you know, recession and Katrina, that's intimately tied to the way we get to this gentrification point in Atlanta. So you got the Olympics in 96. We began to tear down the public housing projects in 1993, starting with Techwood Homes, which was the first public housing project in the country, period, like 
it was the model. Um, so Atlanta birthed public housing and then it was the first one to eradicate it. So it came, that teardown came with the Olympics. Um, and then, you know, you get the recession where so much of the wealth in Atlanta was tied into real estate and housing, which is why we have a lot of unfinished, um, you know, housing developments in the suburbs that might have just gotten done in the last couple of years and may still sit unfinished, right? And you get Hurricane Katrina happening. So a lot of those people who were bust out of New Orleans got bust into Atlanta. And so if you don't have the public housing project, right, to take up these, you know, disaster refugees from Katrina and because, you know, Atlanta was supposed to provide one for one housing, but it's like, we're tearing down housing for our own poor people. How do we house the poor people from New Orleans on top of that? Boom, you get recession. So you get this major sort of shock of, or shock of domino effect events. And it lays bare sort of the city for whoever wants to buy in this mess can buy. So a lot of developers bought space and land plots and old dilapidated housing between 2005 and 2010. You get the development of the Atlanta Beltline, which is, oh God, that's an episode in itself, but in short terms, it is the redevelopment of a railroad loop into this concrete walking trail that is speculatively supposed to have public transit running around it in a loop. And it's supposed to, air quote, um, connect neighborhoods in Atlanta in a way that they've never been connected before, but it massively displays Black people, brown people, working class individuals, students, you know, from, you know, the neighborhoods that we know and love. So like Bankhead is like the newest section of the of the Beltline that's being developed. You know, they are they are now connecting Bankhead as like South Buckhead. And, you know, what used to be Bankhead is now West Midtown. And what used to be a public housing project is now the West Highlands. And these are three hundred, four hundred thousand dollar housing where public housing projects sat. And so a lot of the folks that got hit hard in that recession, that got hit hard in the Katrina diaspora, are now taking up housing in the suburbs because you can't live along the Beltline. That is the highest um, priced properties in the city. You know, that's that's where the, the prime real estate is. And it sparked development in and around it. So if your neighborhood is in close proximity to the Beltline, that's almost always going to be a selling tag for the house or the apartment that you're trying to acquire. It's always on the on the tagline, you know, half mile from the Beltline. So therefore you need to pay $2,000 a month in rent. And it's sort of ridiculous. And so now we are stuck in this moment where, you know, a, a string of events have led to a fertile ground for gentrification. You've had you know, shifts in investment in stadiums and big development. And now a lot of the poor people have been displaced to the suburbs. And I hate to pathologize space. So I hate to associate space with race, space with class, but it is what it is. So now the suburbs are being looked at under this guise of suburban poverty. So I think it's sort of, I think 60% of the newly poor people in Atlanta now reside in the suburbs. Um, so you have things like, you know, what what the hell is happening in Clayton County? Um, you have counties that used to be lily white, like uh, Cobb and Gwinnett County, that are now majority minority counties. So there are a lot of black and brown folks there. There are a lot of immigrants there. So you have immigrant rights issues coming up. I mean, ICE will round people up in places like Gwinnett, far out in DeKalb, 
And so you're seeing the dynamics of the city shift. What used to be concentrated urban issues like poverty, immigration, um, policing, surveillance, you are placing people vulnerable to these social ills of capitalism outside of the city and into the suburbs. And if the suburb is still run by, you know, white good old boys and their matching police forces, you get very dangerous situations for black and brown bodies who do not fit, queer bodies who do not fit. Um, and so all of this development, you can never divorce the development of the city from the plantation. You can never divorce the gentrification of a city from the uh, undervaluation of the suburbs. And so it's all like a sort of intertwined list or I guess wheel of the way that capital turns and um, the way that you place black and brown subjects in sort of the hegemony of capitalist development is um, very easy to put your finger on when you look at, you know, where are the destitute in this gentrification narrative and how did they get here? And this brings me to another, uh, and probably my final point is exactly what you're discussing, the, the sort of violent aspects, the, the less overt, right? So when I think of the quote unquote overt aspects of the violence of gentrification, I think most people would probably think homelessness, housing insecurity, uh, price gouging, you know, these kind of things. But the ripple effect is surveillance state and police state. Mm-hmm. And it's bifold in the city. We have an increase in police officers and policing because now the new uh, sort of bourgeois upper class people who have moved in and taken over this area, they will have to they have to feel safe and quote unquote secure. Mm-hmm. And of course, we know police in this country are, are built to protect capital, essentially. Um, mm-hmm. So now the the inner cities and the areas being gentrified are, are over policed. And that's an area of violence directly onto black working class people. And then in the suburbs, as you mentioned, where these people now have to go, there's the same thing, there's over-policing. And this isn't coincidental at all. I mean, for example, so with the heightened, uh, na- with, sorry, I can't talk tonight. <laughs> mm-hmm. With the heightened nature of gentrification in Atlanta, we've seen higher numbers of homelessness in the past few years. But we, and, and what was a trend in policing where they actually were having lower police recruitment numbers Politicians have now ran for the past decade on the promise of more police and more policing to deal with problems of quote unquote crime and homelessness. Mm -hmm. And actually the very first thing that Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms did when she got into office was a huge pay raise for Atlanta police Mm -hmm. that came from new punitive measures in traffic fine, distracted driver laws, um, you know, and this whole sort of petty fines. That's actually what funded the police raise, right? So. Mm-hmm. She ran on the promise that she would do that. Yeah. And if you don't think gentrification is connected to that, then you just don't want to believe it. <laughs> I mean, it absolutely is. A lot of the reason why we get, quote unquote, new affordable housing or what we call workforce housing in the field, which is housing, you know, gen- are pointed at your your teachers and your police force and your first responders, sort of that upper class of the working class um, groups of individuals. Um it's, it's police housing. And it's this idea of like, if you put your police in your neighborhood and they become a part of your community, you get better policing. That's not how the fuck it works. Like throw the police out. That's what we want. We don't want police. We don't want prisons. And the yes, city is- Throw them out. You yes. know, in not, the trash. Let's, Literally let's not put pay them, them in the more. Trash. Let's not house them. Let's not feed the police state. Um, right. 
And in Atlanta, you know, the the anti-immigrant violence over the past five years, My I believe, has, has like doubled. I mean, Gwinnett, like you said, there's an ICE raid happening every week. There have been Muslims who have been killed. There was a Muslim woman, actually, um, last year who was having a mental health crisis. She was a Muslim immigrant from Somalia, mm-hmm. and police shot and killed her, right? Um, mm-hmm. So these are, I mean, if you don't have a place to live or you are forced to move into a new neighborhood that was once white, we know we know that white people already feel as if they are the police and they call the police on black people for existing. Mm-hmm. But now you now you integrate this entirely new population that has been forced really to move. Um, this is a recipe for disaster, whether than the location that's being gentrified or where people are being forced to move to or go to. And then you have to um, sort of, you know, hood project culture. Like if you got black folks that live a certain way inside of the pathologized inner city, you get inner city blacks pushed out to a suburb that is, you know, either lily white or in affluent or white and working class or where immigrant communities have set up shop and have been. So like, you know, on the South side, you have a lot of Vietnamese folks in Forest Park or like up in Gwinnett, you have a melting pot of black and brown people. You, um, you know, you push newcomers from the city on top of these established immigrant enclaves and you get a shit show of disaster and over-policing. So like you're saying, it, it's very much all intertwined. And, um, you know, I, I would, I'm very interested to see what Atlanta turns out looking like in the next 10 or 20 years. I know all the plans that they have, you know, on the table that they're deploying now, but you're going to be looking at a lily white center city, a black and brown suburb exurb, unless we get things like public transit and other, you know, pushes that people need out to those areas, you know, it's going to be cataclysmic. Um, And so, yeah, Atlanta is a place to watch for these changes. If you're, if you're interested in any of the, the topics that we've brought up. Briefly, before we sign off, I know we've been talking for over an hour now, and I, I never try to get too too much over that. But I know another part of your research and your writing is looking at the cultures that are sort of birthed from, from this industrialization and gentrification in these environments. And you spend a lot of time dealing with trap music mm-hmm. in Atlanta, as well as go-go music in D.C., um, mm-hmm. or rap music in Chicago and these as, mm-hmm. as cultures that come from this. Can you, can you sort of tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, in short, I look at trap and trap, music trap culture, trap aesthetic, and now um, Atlanta sort of as the birthplace of what we know as trap and its offshoots and the way that the city has shifted the trap from the discursive undercommon voice of the press to this commodifiable piece of capital and how you know, the trap elites are a part of the the ruling class now. And so what does that mean for the ghetto, for the trap? Like, what does it mean for Bankhead to develop along the belt line if you have T.I. and Killer Mike on Keisha Lance Bottoms, like, transition team, you know? And so in the same ways that Go-Go is a space of of revolutionary, like, needle-pushing, anti-gentrification work, like, you know, don't don't silence, don't displace Go-Go, Trap is not deployed in the same way in Atlanta because it's it's sort of like trap was revolutionary before its time. 
Um, and it and it has globalized in a way that it is no longer inherently Atlanta. So I look at trap now diasporically as what are the connections between these um, these black um, performance and expressive cultures in spaces of urban contestation. And my work comes out of a genealogy of work in black studies, black geographies um, from uh, the grandfather of them all to me, uh, Clyde Woods, who is who has passed away, but he wrote two amazing books, Development, Drowned and Reborn, where he looks at the blues um, epistemology in New Orleans around Katrina and the other book, um, Development Arrested, where he looks at the development of the blues as sort of a, a mirror um, to say like the plantation and plantation governance ain't dead. And so in the same ways that neoliberalism is looked at as an urban phenomenon, Wood says, no, actually it's a plantation phenomenon and the blues maps this for us. I take sort of that frame of work, apply it to trap and look at the way that the trap has historically held up a mirror to Atlanta as the black Mecca, the city or the Southern city as these, these places of progress, like look at us post civil rights and says, no, 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 no. The plight of the black person is still very much shitty. And so they are involved in, in fugitive activities and live in fugitive geographies like trap spaces. And so trap is not just a geography for us or a space for us to commodify and, and embody and identify with, but it, it is very critical and it does really important revolutionary um, work of sort of the capitalist power structure in a city. And so um, I'm very interested in connecting trap work in Atlanta in the Southern city to sort of the, like global trap and like what cultures are coming from these, you know, spaces of globalization, urbanization, displacement, um, and oppression across the African diaspora and, and what expressive cultures come from it and um, how they all connect and create this very inherent to the, to the black diaspora, like mode of, resistance. So you get, you know, blues in the Delta, you got jazz in Harlem, you know, blues moves to Chicago and then overseas to London. And then, you know, you get hip hop in austerity, New York, austerity centered New York after a fiscal crisis. And, you know, the Bronx is burning. So we get hip hop. Atlanta's fucked. So we get trapped. Um, and what, what narratives and stories about a city are they telling us that the power structure erases and how do we embrace that and embrace the fugitivity in it and say it's okay for our blackness to exist in this trap way because there's no way that we could ever conform to the norms of sort of the, the hegemonic West. Um, so that's a long way of saying it. My work's really complex and it's developing, but you know, I when I entered grad school or entered the urban studies program, I wanted to do my um, thesis work and I'm hoping to get into a PhD program and continue this at the dissertation level based on the way that I know the city or have known the city. And trap music was for me, you know, a person from Macon, Georgia, who moved to Atlanta um, during, you know, the 2007, 2007 era. Like, how did I relate to the city and understand the city? It was through trap music. So how can I reread that for, like, critical resistance? So um, that's sort of what inspired the work. So I'm excited to keep pursuing it. I think we're out of time on this imaginary time constraint that I'm creating. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> but you know I love you and I can't wait to see you again. And I thank you so much for coming on and educating all of us. This has been one of my favorite interviews that I've done so far for the series. No shade to the other interviewees. And um, so is there any final thoughts or words you want to say to people? Um, absolutely. Thank you so much for the opportunity. You know, it's all love over here too. I love you to death, Dev. Um, one of my fave comrades. Um, but no, I just I just challenge people to continue to be critical, um, whether it's, you know, small or large. If that, you know, new mural that they painted in your neighborhood is really driving you crazy, like look into it. You know, how are they how are they deploying these pieces of culture as a part of their regime? And I promise you there's a history in it, a history that they want you to know and a history that they don't. Um, and you can be critical about everything. I'm taking trap music and, and making it critical. So, um, you know, be engaged, be involved and be critical, read, study and, and self-care. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you tweet at me and tell me how you liked it. If you liked it, if not, I don't care. We are trying to get a negotiation for a community benefit contract that is binding and legal with Georgia State University, Carter Development, and Oakwood development. And we're gonna be out here as long as it takes until they listen to us and know that this is not a joke, this is our livelihood, and we're willing to stay on this front line as long as we have to. But we are dedicated because we are really concerned about what's happening to us as residents and what's gonna to happen to the other residents in the community who don't have a voice. Low-income people are gonna be the first people to go. The income around here does not fit that development. The majority of the people around here in this community make like $17,000 a year. So I'm saying something should be down there for everybody. We plan on being here until we are invited to the table to negotiate a community benefits agreement. Fashion and black lips, but we are holy matrimony to the world we created with our black fingertips. We are the molding agent. Utilized only for superficial gain, this country only stimulated our superficial pain. But black strength is funny because we play the superficial game pretty well, huh? We always get away just in time, huh? Well, not this time, because we have a purpose, and the strength we have is worth it. So we must work out to our black advantage, perfect. I think it's time to give birth. I think it's time to eject into a new prison. I mean, a new prism. Welcome to Black Graduation and to Peace and Loveism. In a country where they are forced to live as strangers, ownership of land has meant so much for Black people. The struggle against gentrification for Atlanta's Black working class has brought in a number of issues, including over-policing of Black communities and under-resourcing of Black schools. In a city where corporate capitalist private interests have taken priority over the quality of life of most of its residents, students and community have banded together to take a stand and say once and for all that human dignity, education, jobs, self-determination, economic development, all matter so much more than the private interests of capitalist developers.
So, so we can all go 